0: Well, our scripture reading this morning. (laughs) You're all a little nervous, aren't you? Uh, First Samuel four through six. We're not going to read all of this. We're going to leave out maybe two or three verses. So I'm just kidding. We're going to we're going to skip over a little more than that. So don't don't get don't sweat it too much. Uh, This past summer about a week after our family got back from vacation at Yellowstone, I was watching the news and saw that there was a 43-year-old woman from Mississippi who was at Yellowstone and who was gored by a bison. And her injuries turned out to be minor, thankfully, but you kinda have to ask the question, how did that happen? Well, it turns out that the woman, along with her six-year-old daughter, were six yards away from the bison, With their back turned to the bison, you want to guess what they're doing? This is not a leading cause of death ahead of sharks. Uh, They were taking a selfie. Trying to take a selfie with the bison when the bison attacked. Um, Maybe the bison in Mississippi are more docile, I don't know. Um, But in in her defense, having been there, with you know, elk kind of wandering the parking lot and bison walking down the middle of the road you can begin to view them as sort of domesticated, like they're just larger versions of your cute, fluffy little dog back home, and you can forget that they're not tame at all. Uh, You think of them in one way, but the reality is something quite different. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, by C.S. Lewis, Mr. Beaver is talking about Aslan the Lion, who's the, the Christ figure in the book, and he says, oh, he'll be coming and going... One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down, and of course he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. Tourists at Yellowstone fall into the trap of thinking that the animals are tame and domesticated. And we often do the same thing with God, don't we? We try to create this tame user-friendly, domesticated God. And when we do that, we actually misunderstand who God is. And misunderstanding who God is is actually much more dangerous than trying to take a selfie with a bison. And so what we want to do this morning as we look at this long text uh, is think about four ways that we tend to misunderstand who God is. Uh, We're not going to read all of it. We're going to read some chunks of it as we go. So let me pray before we start this. God in heaven, um, we do tend to make you in our own image. And we do tend to try to shape you into the the God that we want. And so I pray this morning that we would see you as you are. And that we would be able to submit ourselves to that reality. Uh, Help me to, to accurately portray who you are Lord we pray this in Jesus name amen well the first way we can tend to misunderstand who God is is that we misunderstand who he is when we think of him as an optional accessory in our lives when we think of him simply as an optional accessory in our lives so look here chapter four that's the the very beginning and I'm going to read the first three verses Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh so that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The Philistines and the Israelites were kind of, they were not buddies, they were lifelong rivals and they're, they're going into battle again and the Israelites go into this battle and they lose. And in verse 3 they ask, what's up? What happened? Why did we lose? Why did the Lord defeat us today? And their answer is kind of, they're halfway there. They're half right and they're half wrong. Correctly, they realize that they've gone into battle without God being present with them. That they tried to go into battle on their own. We, we tried to do this on our own and we shouldn't have done that. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 3 that we looked at last week, in those days we were told the word of the Lord was actually rare. But that was changing. God was raising up a prophet. He was raising up Samuel to declare his will to his people. The word of the Lord was being proclaimed again in all of Israel. But now they're confronted with a battle against their enemies, and no one bothers to consult God. No one bothers to call Samuel. No one bothers to say, well, should we go? How should we go? When should we go? How should we approach this? They don't seek God's blessing. They don't look for a word from the Lord. And so they go into battle and they lose. Uh, for years, the Israelites have been treating God as an optional accessory in their lives. Uh, you read the book of Judges. They've been doing what is right in their own eyes. And now, even though the word of the Lord is once again being proclaimed in Israel, it's available to them they feel no need to seek it out before they go into battle. He's still an optional accessory in their lives. And you guys know what that is. When you go and, and buy a, a new car, uh, you can add the high-end stereo and the XM radio and the, the mud flaps and, 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 and the tinted windows. And, and all these things that might make for a better driving experience, but which aren't really essential for getting from point A to point B. That's how the Israelites are looking at God. They're like, oh, yeah, he might be useful at times, but he's not really essential for me getting from point A to point B. He's not really essential even for us winning this battle. They felt adequate to do life without him. Now, we don't, we don't ever do that, do we? Uh, yeah, we, we do that all the time. Uh, many people today would, would say that God is just an optional accessory. Hey, it's great if God makes a difference in your life. I'm, I'm happy that he does that for you. But I just, I just don't really feel a need for him. Uh, Tim Keller in his book Reason for God writes that some people say, I simply feel no need for God and I'm not interested in thinking about it. Uh, I love his response to that. He says, hidden beneath this feeling is a very modern American belief that the existence of God is a matter of indifference unless it intersects with my emotional needs the speaker is betting his or her life that no God exists to hold you accountable for your beliefs and behavior if you didn't feel the need for him Um, if, if that's you this morning I just want to invite you to think about the leap of faith you're actually making even right now and to consider that maybe there is a God maybe there is a Lord of the universe Who isn't pleased that you consider him nothing more than an optional accessory for your life. Um, Well, it's not just people who don't believe in God or people who aren't Christians or whatever who treat God as an optional accessory, but we can do that in the church um, ourselves, can't we? What does it look like? It looks like leaving areas of our lives ungoverned by the Word of God. It looks like making decisions without being guided by God's Word. It it looks like going through my day without prayer, quietly confident that my degree, my qualifications, my expertise, my experience, my money, my connections will get me what I need, will get me where I need to be in life. It looks like controlling behavior. It looks like anxiety. It looks like getting angry when the people around me aren't doing what I want them to do. It looks like anxiety and stress and the inability to rest. Or find any peace. And I want to suggest that when we're doing that, when we're in that place, when we try to do life without God, when we we treat Him as an optional accessory, and when He then allows us to fail, or in whatever way He brings us to the point where we realize our need for Him again, while that can be incredibly painful, that's actually a blessing in disguise that's his grace in a painful form because he's bringing us to that place where we see that we really need him the first way that we misunderstand who God is is when we think of him simply as an optional accessory in our lives maybe we need him, maybe we don't most of the time we can just do things on our own the second way we misunderstand God here is when we try to manipulate him Uh, Look at verse 3 again. Let's read that again, and then we'll read a little bit further. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the Israelites go into battle. And they lose. And they rightly ask, well, why were we defeated here? And if they had spent a little more time thinking about this the book of Leviticus might have come to mind where God promised his people that if they continue to persist in disobedience to him he says I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down by your enemies he had told them this was what was going to happen if they turned their backs on him and that's what's just happened the Israelites have been doing what's right in their own eyes they've been ignoring God and they go into battle and he allows them to be defeated this would be a good time to repent right this would be a good time to seek god's face to ask him for forgiveness instead they turn to this religious object and they try to force god's hand they turn to the ark of the covenant they say let's grab this and let's go back in the battle now what's the ark of the covenant well old testament lesson here what's what's the ark of the covenant If, if you're of my age or thereabouts when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, you tend to think of writers of the Lost Ark, right? Um, and, and, and they're right, this, this Ark is not Noah's Ark, uh, this is a box. It's a wooden box, it's covered with, with gold, it's a little under four feet long, it's a little over two feet wide, a little over two feet high. In the Ark of the Covenant where it was the covenant document, the, the copy of the Ten Commandments was in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, You couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. So there were these two wooden poles that were also covered with gold, and they were mounted on either side of this box. And this is what was used to carry the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a golden cover, which was called the mercy seat, uh, or the atonement cover, where blood was sprinkled to make atonement uh, for the sins of the people once a year. There were two cherubim, statues of cherubim, these angelic beings, on top of this atonement covers, so on top of the box with their wings spread and they're, they're, they're looking down or they're, they're, they're bowing down. Uh, and listen to what God tells Moses about the ark and about him meeting him there in Exodus 25. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is, the Ark of the Covenant is pretty significant. This is where God is present with His people, where He speaks to Moses. The Ark at times, when God commanded it, also went with God's people into battle. And that happens in Joshua 6, where they're marching around Jericho. And they take the Ark of the Covenant with them. So this is significant in the life of Israel. It was about God's power, it was about God's leading, it was about reconciliation, but more than that, it was about God being present with his people. But here in chapter 4, they simply say, we lost, what should we do about this? Oh, let's go grab the ark. Uh, And and it's more of an it than about God, it's kind of become this lucky rabbit's foot, or this magical source of power. They say, well, what did we do wrong? Oh, we didn't take the Ark with us. Let's go back and get the Ark. They were looking at it much the way Marcus Brody describes in Raiders of the Lost Ark when somebody's like, well, why do the Nazis want the Ark of the Covenant? What's the big deal with it? And he says, any army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. And that's kind of how the Israelites feel about it at this point. This gives us magic power. We can go and defeat the Philistines if we have the Ark of the Covenant. they weren't invincible and they lose and we didn't read this part uh, but Hophni and and Phineas through the bad priest they actually die and the ark is captured and when Eli Hophni and Phineas' dad finds out about all this he dies and then his daughter-in-law Phineas' wife gives birth and she dies but before she dies she names her child Ichabod which means either no glory or where is the glory? And she says the reason is the glory has departed from Israel for the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. It was a a bad day. It was a bad day in Israel. They were trying to manipulate God and it didn't work too well for them. Now, do we ever do that? Do we ever try to manipulate God? Do we try to use religious rituals to get him to do what we want and then we get mad when he doesn't do what we want Uh, some LSU fans were upset last year because normally their mascot's tigers right Uh, and they bring an actual tiger to the games and he's in a cage Uh, but they put him in this cage next to where the visitor visiting team comes out it's a little intimidating to run by this tiger but he hadn't been at the games all year last year. I don't know if it went through the whole season, but for several games, he just wasn't there, and the fans were mad about this. They like, well, why don't you just bring him, just put him in the cage, just throw some meat in there and get him to come. And the, the, the vet who takes care of him basically said, the tiger's name's Mike, he said, Mike comes when Mike wants to come. We, we can't tell the tiger when to come. He, he shows up when he wants to show up. We can't force him into that cage. Now, let me be careful with this illustration. God is not a moody, unreliable tiger. Um, but, but God acts when God wants to act. Um, yes, he tells us to pray. Yes, he tells us to continue to pray and to continue to keep knocking until someone answers. But, but He's not under our control. He's not this cosmic drink machine that we're just a few coins short of, and if we just pray a little bit more, we'll ring up the required dollar amount, and He'll be forced to answer our prayers. We should pray. We should be persistent. We should see God's face. But am I praying to know my Father? Or has it just become this religious ritual that I go through thinking that it's going to get me what I want? Uh, We're commanded to tithe and the Bible says there's great blessing that comes when we tithe but we have to be careful not to fall into thinking well if I give this amount then God's obligated to do X, Y, and Z in my life and if you would just tithe then everything would be okay and you wouldn't have any problems because God would be obligated. Uh, We've been fasting as a church on the first Tuesday of each month and we're doing that for the rest of the year. Uh, and we're doing that to pray for conversions and, and pray that God would establish this church and pray that God would give the session at Mount Calvary wisdom about our, our Hispanic church, Monte Calvario. And, th- and that's a good thing to do. But we have to be careful of that too, don't we? Because we can view fasting that way. It's easy to view fasting as, well, we're taking the ark out in the battle and if enough of us fast, then God's going to be obligated to do what we want him to do if we all go to this trouble then God has to respond in the way we want him to we misunderstand God if if we think we can manipulate him with our religious actions we misunderstand God a third way we misunderstand God we misunderstand God when we think other gods are more worthy of our devotion than he is so flip over to chapter 5 it's about middle of middle of that next page full of text. Uh, and let me read these first six verses. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it in the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. So the Philistines grab the Ark of God, and they run back home with it, and they take it to the temple of their God, and they're placing it there, and their intention to show, is to show that Israel's God has been captured and defeated. And when they get up the next morning, the statue of Dagon has fallen face down and it's as as if he were bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. And so they run in there like, well, this isn't good. And they prop Dagon back up again. And they come back the next day and he's fallen down again. And this time his head and his hands have been cut off. And then God begins to afflict the people of Ashdod. uh, It says with tumors. And we don't know exactly what was involved. Something this may have been the bubonic plague, but... Something very bad is beginning to happen in the Philistine territory. And we're not going to read the rest of that chapter, but what it basically turns into is this big game of let's get rid of the ark. And so they have, one people has it for a while they're like, everybody's catching this disease and dying, like we don't want this around here. So they send it to another city and everybody starts catching the plague there. And they send it to another city and he gets to this other city and the people there, they've heard about it by now. And somebody's tweeted, "Don't, don't take the ark. And so the people of this new city, they're like, no, 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 you can't bring the ark in here. All right, so people, people don't want the ark anymore. And so basically it's in the Philistine territory for about seven months before they finally say, well, let's just send that thing back. All right, and that's what the rest of this chapter is about, is about them sending the, the ark of the covenant back. But what's the point of all this? What's the point of this chapter? The point is that before God, all other supposed gods fall on their face. Before God, all other supposed gods fall on their face. Other gods have to be propped up. God is the sovereign Lord. God is the sovereign Lord who even when He looks like He's losing is actually winning. He's orchestrating the events of history to bring about the defeat of his enemies and to bring about ultimate good for his people. But even when it looks like he's losing, he's sovereign over these things. Where else do we see that in the Bible? Maybe in the, in, in the New Testament, where Jesus, as it were, allows himself to be captured, to be put to death, to die on the cross for our idol worship, for our adultery, for our, for our many sins. And it looks like he's losing. He's handed over to the Romans. He's whipped. He's beaten. He's crucified. He dies. He's buried. It looks like he's losing. It. it looks like he's lost. But then he rises again on the third day, winning atonement for the sin of his people, defeating Satan, defeating death. He rises victorious. and says, come to me. Have life if you're a Christian you know all that we talk about that on a fairly regular basis you know all that that Jesus is the savior that you need but there are still these times when other gods seem more attractive when other saviors seem more worthy of our devotion sex or power or money or control, being right being comfortable, having people think that we're respectable and we stray away and we start worshiping other gods. Uh, there's an old song some of you are familiar with called the Pina Colada song. Uh, those of you who remember this. And it's, it's about a guy who's frustrated with his marriage and he's reading the personal ads and he sees in the personal ads a woman who wants the same thing, same things out of life that he does. Uh, drinking Pina Coladas and being caught in the rain and, and he responds to the ad and he shows up to meet the person and it's his wife who had placed the ad in the paper. The person that they were both looking for was a person that they were already with. The better spouse was the one they were already married to. Christians, if you're a believer, the best Savior you can have, the best God you can have, is the one you have right now in Jesus Christ. There is no better Savior. And we misunderstand God when we turn away to these idols, when we turn away to other gods, and think that they're more worthy of our devotion. Now, if you hear you're not a Christian, you do need to look for a better Savior than the one you're with now. Uh, and, and you are with somebody now. You are with some type of Savior. We're all relying on someone or something give us significance to rescue us from this broken world. We all have saviors, but there's a better savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the only savior who truly loves you. He's the only savior who will die for you. He's the only savior that can actually rescue you. We misunderstand God when we think that other gods are more worthy of our devotion than He is. And then finally, the last thing we misunderstand God. We misunderstand who He is. We don't take His holiness seriously. So, the Philistines send the heart back finally. They send it back to Beth Shemesh. And we read there that the people rejoice. Like they're glad to have the heart back and they celebrate. But then we read this. So turn over to the very last page of the text. And go down to the next to last paragraph verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19. And he struck, this is God, and God struck some of the men Some of, the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us. There's a scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they open the ark. <clears throat> the Nazis are laughing at the guy standing there opening and then this cloud comes up out of the ark and then fire bursts out of the ark and this guy goes up in flames and the flame shoots out of him and it consumes all the Nazis who are standing around there and burns them up. And that very accurately conveys the message to us, do not take God's holiness lightly. Do not take God's holiness lightly. There's some debate about exactly what the men of Bashu mess did wrong here uh, at the Ark. Uh, Tim Chester says that they messed up because they sacrificed cows when they're supposed to be sacrificing bulls. That they paraded the Ark around and put it on a rock for everybody to see when they were supposed to have some of the priests come and make sure that it was covered properly, and that they may have even like lifted up the lid and looked into it here. They took God's holiness lightly. We misunderstand God when we take His holiness lightly. Now, we don't have a heart to mishandle. Uh, how, are we, how can we be guilty of taking His holiness lightly? Can we disregard God when we think He's just as easygoing about matters of religion as we are? Like, He's just the cosmic dude or something? Uh, when we don't take worshiping Him Seriously? Uh, Annie Dillard wrote, Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea so what sort of power we likely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our cues. We we, we misunderstand God's holiness when we take worshiping Him lightly. We disregard His holiness when we take our own sin lightly. We say, I'm just the way I am. We disregard His holiness think of church as a social club. We disregard His holiness and we say, well, no. He will not work out in me, and He'll accept everybody. We disregard His holiness when we think, I can stand in His presence based on my own merit. And so the, the men of Beth Shemesh here, though, finally ask the right question. They finally say, who is able to stand before the able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. He's not tame. You can't control Him. He's holy. What do you do when you get to that point where you realize you can no longer view God as optional? And and you finally come to that realization. When you realize that you can't manipulate Him. He's not a God to be manipulated. When you realize that all other gods are nothing before Him and He's the God you actually need. He's the Savior you need realize all that, but you can't get close to Him because His holiness threatens to destroy you because He's so holy and you're not. What do you do when you get to that point? Chapter 7, verse 2. Actually, let we'll read verse 1 and 2. And the men of Kirith, Jerion came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged in Kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Israel is finally lamenting over their sin. They're they're to the point, they're getting to the point where they're they're ready to do business with the God who is and not the God that they want to be there. Have you ever gotten to that point? Have you ever gotten to that point? Have you asked that question? Who can stand before holy God? Have you lamented your own sin? Have you seen your need for a savior? The whole Bible is about a loving and holy God who justly judges sin, but who also provides a Savior in Jesus Christ. Do you come to him as your Savior? Will you lament your sin come to Jesus? We pray for us. Father, it's uh, it's not very hard to see all. The ways that we try to shape you into the God that we want to be a tame, user-friendly God that we can control, that we can manipulate, that we can use for our own purposes. Yeah, Father, this text reminds us that you're not tame and we can't do that. And above all that, you're a holy God, you're a righteous God, without sin, and we can't even get close to you without so, Father, we thank you that you point us even this text to what our need is. Our need is to repent. Our need is to lament our sin and cry out to you. Because in that crying out, we find that you're a gracious God and you're a forgiving God. You forgive all who come to you and trust in the Savior you Provider, provided in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would be those who have done that. And that if there's any of us here today who haven't trusted in Jesus, uh, that today might be that day when we would put our faith in the true God of His only Son of Jesus, our Savior. We ask in His name.